From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi, and I might sound a little bit different. It's because we're recording this like everybody else is doing many things on Zoom these days. This is our sixth season of Frankly Speaking, and we join you this year in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Frankly Speaking is about chatting with smart people that have a sense of humor about topics that matter to our listeners and lean toward progressive ideas. We have conversations about issues facing the golf industry, golf course superintendents, as well as the many aspects of managing natural and synthetic playing surfaces in urban grasslands around the world. We've recorded 100 episodes as we start 2020 and look forward to a full season of conversations, diagnostic updates from around the country, a new sustainability series with Parker Anderson at Greener Golf, and the mindful superintendent, Paul McCormick. We're adjusting our schedule to address issues that will shape the green industry during and after the pandemic. As always, we are grateful to the maestro Peter McCormick and the Johns at Turfneck, Kiger, and Reitman, and from the support of the great members of the Turfneck community and listeners beyond. We welcome back our sponsors, Dryject and Intelligrow. We really appreciate your support of these sponsors. Before we get started, I'd like to say on behalf of everyone at Frankly Speaking and Turfnet, we hope that all of you and your families are doing all right in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. We're doing our best to pay close attention to the many challenges we all face moving into a new normal for each of us personally and professionally. As a New Yorker, I feel a particular sadness for my city. Much like an armed conflict when we honor our military personnel, let's collectively take a moment and give thanks and respect to the frontline healthcare workers and first responders in grocery stores and along the food and healthcare supply chain. Their courage in the face of great risk of illness demands support from the rest of us to use appropriate steps that might mitigate the spread of the virus currently overwhelming our healthcare system. Now on to the impact of COVID-19 on the business of golf in our first Frankly Speaking episode. I had three conversations with four golf industry professionals on the impact now and moving forward on the golf economy, the game, and golf course operations from dining rooms to putting surfaces. Jim Copenhaver is the president of Pellucid Golf and Stuart Lindsay of Edge Hill Consulting provide fact-based, pragmatic solutions to business challenges, which when consistently applied and tracked, produce revenue and profit growth and or operational efficiencies. They are frequent guests on the program, often providing a contrarian view of the mainstream golf perspective. Their outside the ropes publication, Pellucid Perspective, and annual state of the industry are all must-reads. Jamie Robb has been in the golf industry for 25 years, growing up working at several private clubs throughout Ontario and the U.S. state of Florida. He obtained his bachelor's degree in horticultural science and business from the University of Guelph in 2002. Jamie is course superintendent at the Marine Drive Club in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I had the pleasure of meeting Jamie during his tenure at Capilano Golf and Country Club, where he oversaw $4 million in capital projects, including the restoration of several greens back to their original 1938 Stanley Thompson design. He is director for the British Columbia Golf Superintendents Association and the Allied Golf Association of British Columbia, and has served on several Canadian Golf Superintendent Association committees. Finally, Craig Cochran. He's the golf superintendent at the Van Patten Golf Club in Mechanicville, New York, the capital district of Albany. Van Patten is a 27-hole public golf course built in 1968 with one owner-operator. Craig has a degree in business administration from Hudson Valley Community College and the golf turf certificate from Rutgers University. A self-described boomerang superintendent, he served on countless local, regional, and national committees, served as president of the Northeast Golf Course Superintendents Association, and is a tireless advocate for professionalism, collegiality, and progressive management. 
I started my conversation with Jim and Stewart asking Jim directly how the COVID-19 pandemic would impact the golf economy. We're looking at it. Uh, we just released in the April perspective an article that attempted to make a quantitative analysis on, you know, how is this going to impact the golf economy, particularly the golf operations. So things that are all things facility and round space. And as we looked at it, um, it's going to hurt the full season markets. So the ones that are operating now, like California, Arizona and the desert, it'll hurt a little bit less because they've had the advantage of a very strong first quarter before everybody went into lockdown. And now we're going to hit what I'm going to call the hiatus quarter, which is the uh, second quarter where I think there's going to be you know, very little golf played uh, in many of the states across the country. So kind of the summary that we had was that across the whole industry, we think back at the envelope, it's going to cost us about 70 million rounds this year. Uh, that's on a base of 450. The bigger concern that colleague Stuart Lindsay that we're going to hear from a little bit later is the Northern courses who are just opening up, they're going to lose the second quarter, which is a very important quarter for them. It's about 40% of their year. So the question for them is going to be, if you lose 40% of your rounds in revenue right off the bat, uh, that's going to be a much tougher hill to climb for the northern courses than in general across the states. Expectations for the golf economy in 2020 can be shaped for many clubs over the next few weeks. I turned to Stuart Lindsay and asked about course closures. There's a big debate as to whether any of the golf courses should be open anywhere. Right. But, you know, that's a balancing act that we're going to have to do across the entire economy. I mean, the primary thing is the people that are open, I mean, the reports we got to confirm what you said, I mean, we talked to some people in Florida. They were having great years. I mean, they had a great January, great February. And then some of the courses in Florida, like at Disney, for instance, they're shut down by choice. But anyway, the people that are open seem to be having a high level of play, but the capacity is limited. I mean, first of all, a lot of them are walking only in order to practice safe distancing. Secondly, it's single person to a cart. So that's going to impact cart revenues. They can't raise the price of a, of a cart fee, for instance. They're still charging $17 per person per cart. Let's say you've got 40 carts. Now you can only accommodate 40 golfers instead of 80 golfers. Let's talk a little bit about the casualties of this first. Uh, do you think that's going to speed that up? If you think about it, it's kind of like uh, we do think that it's going to accelerate the supply absorption, uh, unfortunately. Uh, we're about seven years, 7% uh, still oversupplied. We've been working it off about a percent a year. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we look at it, we think, you know, this is going to hasten the departure of probably several hundred more courses in 2020 than would have occurred if we had not had, uh, unfortunately, the pandemic and the coronavirus. So now that we have established there might be fewer courses, is it also possible we'll get more play? Some of this leans into golf as a recreational sport. So as you think about it's outdoor in nature, we're going to be cooped up for probably three months here. I'm looking at that and saying that should be favorable. A lot of the organized sports are going to take a year off or going to take a significant hit uh, where you can't be a pitcher, catcher, and an umpire, you know, within two feet of people, but you can be out in the golf course. So uh, using kind of perverse logic, it's possible that we'll get a little bit of a bump in interest in the sport out of this thing, but I'm not going to go too far out in that limb. You know, I understand the economic pressure and the value to opening, and certainly that's differentiated. Do you have any sense of how willing golfers are going to be and the PGA professionals are going to help us in returning golf to some normalcy? Well, I mean, the funny thing about it is that golfers don't understand maintenance as well as we think they do. And, <laughs> you know, you've got superintendents out there that routinely, at, at the private club level, that routinely mow fairways every day or six times a week. And the golfer doesn't know that the fairway was mowed today or yesterday. That's an example of something where 
you know, you could cut the fairways three times a week instead of six times a week and the golfer wouldn't notice. Well, let me push you on that a little bit. Hold on a second, because, you know, a lot of places have, uh, you know, discriminating golfers, low handicappers. They're like, oh boy, you know, my ball's not, I don't, it's not sitting up as good. Well, I'm not going to brag about my handicap, <laughs> but it's still, it's still single digits. And, you know, I'm as discriminating as anybody. And I can tell you, I play with a lot of real good players and they really don't know as much about maintenance as you think. They understand greens and they sort of understand bunkers, but they complain about bunkers almost universally, regardless of what kind of condition they're in. So I think the golfer, we overestimate the golfer's ability. I mean, and as our old friend Wayne Otto trained me, he said, you know, the same guy that's criticizing your golf conditions for one reason on Tuesday comes back and complains about something else after his wife talked to him about the conditions on ladies. <laughs> so, you know, the, the golfers really don't, you know, they don't understand conditioning the same way that we inside the ropes do. I like to hear you say nobody notices fairways and those other sorts of things so much, uh, or they're willing to accept different because that's where a lot of the resources go. And if we can drive down the resource consumption in these really large areas, fairways, rough, bunkers and things like that, the entire operational budget shrinks uh, proportionally because you're just managing less land. You know, since I'm in Wisconsin, you know, I play as early as I can possibly play. And I know that the greens don't get into peak condition until Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, you know, we've been playing for six or eight weeks, but they don't hit their stride. And we're just so happy to be out of hibernation mm -hmm. um, that we're willing to do that. And we understand that. Uh, it's going to be the same function, you know, even though we aren't starting in April, you know, let's say we get back in June. Mm -hmm. uh, we understand that it takes a little bit of time to get them into shape. So maybe they, maybe they aren't in peak shape until 4th of July or maybe not till Labor Day. I'd like to take a minute and talk to you about DryJack Services that offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. It's a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses. I've personally seen the value of this practice and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several different depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local DryJack service representative or visit dryjack.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking and our COVID-19 Business of Golf special. My next guest, Jamie Robb, is the course superintendent at Marine Drive Golf Club in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's a director for the British Columbia Golf Superintendents Association and the Allied Golf Association of British Columbia and served on several Canadian Golf Superintendent Association committees. I started by asking him what motivated him to send out a four-part tweet that outlined a progressive argument for closing and impact on worker safety. I think the first thing really was the fact that, you know, we're a bit unique here in British Columbia, at least for the Canadian landscape in terms of you know, we have been open for the majority of the winter, at least on the island and in the lower mainland and uh, some of the golf courses in the interior of British Columbia. So I think that although I haven't done a lot of tweeting, a ton of it myself, I certainly follow it a lot, like a lot of guys I think do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I think we've struggled with a bit is I've seen a lot of the comments more from the golf perspective, right? From the golfer's perspective. 
of, hey, I can social distance very well, which I think a lot of golfers can for the most part when they're on the golf course. But I think they don't think about the you know requirements from staffing perspectives, be it on the course and ground side of things, be it from the golf shop side of things, and even the clubhouse maintenance, washrooms, facilities side of things, as well as kind of the last part of my tweet, the societal impacts of driving to golf courses mm-hmm. and back, either be it for employees or for golfers themselves. How had it been up to the time you were shutting down? It had been busy. You know, we kind of had a little bit of a St. Patrick's Day kickoff tournament, although the course had been open through the majority of January and February. In March, we had a bit of a kickoff tournament. Conditions were great. I mean, we had well over 100 golfers on many of the weekend days, which for a golf course north of the 49th parallel with the limited sunlight in the the winter, you know, is is a lot of golf for us. Yeah. So the golf courses were getting busy and people were happy to be out playing golf. And so, you know, when you put out something like you do, people can easily say, well, yeah, it's easy if you got the money to pay people and keep everybody safe and keep everybody home and you don't need the revenue from the golf. That's the devil's advocate position. So where are you at? You're right. I mean, being in a private club and certainly having a COO and board that were supportive of management's recommendations to close the golf course, I think that certainly was something that gave me the ability to speak as frankly as I I did really on that topic, right? So there were certainly owners from smaller clubs who heard both my message and the message that British Columbia Golf had passed along with their recommendations to close golf courses, which really was kind of the switch that I think allowed clubs that could close financially, allowed them to pull that trigger and close and have a little bit of a document or a statement from a association that yeah. said, hey, we're recommending that you close. Well, we better do it. The British Columbia Golf Association, so kind of underneath uh, Golf Canada's umbrella and you know, would be similar to one of the big associations. You know, If the USGA said something like that, it would have a lot of weight in your country, that's, right? That's a- Exactly right. All right. So listen, um, let's get to some logistical issues, right? Because what I like in your narrative was here's the details of why I think this, you know, if we're open, we got to have marshals, you got to clean washrooms. The number of employees goes from 20 to seven, but now that you're closed, you're allowed for more staggered start, right? I mean, when you have to prepare a golf course for play in the morning, if people are expecting to show up and play, you have to have an army of people out there that many of them, you don't need three hours later. And so having some flexibility from closing has to be a a major advantage just in keeping the workers safe and separated, being able to complete the work over the course of the day. Absolutely. It has. I mean, you know, things like we haven't stepped foot in a bunker yet. I mean, we're going to have to, to pull some grass out, some weeds that have been growing in those bunkers. And we haven't had to change a pin or move a tee block or move a tee block off the tee in order to mow it. All those little subtleties that come with having the golf course open for play, even if it means having no rakes out and not actually, you know, raking the bunkers. There's rakes that you have to drive around when you're on a mower, right? There's all those little things that golfers just don't think about when it comes to preparing a golf course for play. And there's one thing to just keep the place in a static condition. And then there's another group of people you have to prep it for play. Is it 20%? Is it five guys? Is it 10 more guys? How would you look at it? I think that all depends on two factors. One what are the course standards during that time, Mm -hmm. right? So right now we're mowing greens once a week, right? Trying to follow some of the USGA and, you know, green turf guys out there saying, you know, not mowing off more than 33% of your turf, right? And we're able to do that now with mowing greens once a week. I think once temperatures warm up, I think that will probably be two or three times a week, Mm -hmm. but just, you know, are golfers okay? And is that acceptable to them that greens will be rolling, whatever, seven, eight on the stint meter. When they come back. When they come back, yes. So figuring out what those standards are, as well as 
how do we open? So when we open, is it 300 rounds a day? Not that we do that many, but more than 200 a day? Or are we saying, hey, it's twosomes only and it's 20 minute tea times? If you're not running a healthy operation going into this, it's going to be tough having a healthy operation coming out of it. So are you seeing some of that signs in the British Columbian golf community? Well, the owners have certainly spoke of that, you know, the fact that if this continues on and if golf courses are shut down, they're going to lose golf course, right? Because I think that a lot of them do it almost as much as a hobby and an enjoyment for the game of golf as they do a revenue source. So when that revenue isn't there, they're really going to struggle. So, you know, that probably is going to happen ultimately, and it will be unfortunate. But I think that balancing that economic side of things with the lives that could be lost and certainly what we're seeing in New York and what we've seen in Italy, I think that should be a greater concern. What are the things on your mind strategically in staffing as the next few months unfold? Well, I think we're comfortable now with where we're at staffing, maintaining a golf course that is not open. I think once we get to maintaining a golf course that is open, it's going to put a lot more risk on the employees, which is a huge concern because if somebody in the department gets COVID or if you have it broken up into two teams and one team gets COVID, then you're not going to have people working for 14 days. And what's that going to do to the health and condition of the golf course? So yeah, there's a lot of thought going behind it. Certainly there are a lot of superintendents in our area that are open. They're already managing that risk as best they can. But I think it's something that owners, board, general managers all need to be thinking about and be aware of. Sage advice from a progressive superintendent. Jamie Robb is the course manager at the Marine Golf Club in Vancouver, British Columbia. When we come back, we'll chat with Craig Cochran of Van Patten Golf Club on this special COVID business issue of Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi, and now for a message from Intelligro. I'm here to chat with you about a product I've been personally involved with in research and education for over 15 years. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Civitas combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses. They assist with the control of insects and diseases as well as increases in stress tolerance. Well, it sounds too good to be true, but the science and experience is solid in support of the programmatic use of Civitas, an OMRI-listed product that leads to reduction in pesticide, nutrient, and water use. A recent ban on pesticide use in Cape Cod led course managers to seek solutions with Civitas. Its use led to high-quality playing conditions with an 80% reduction in environmental risk. Learn more about Civitas turf defense available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations. Or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking and a special COVID Business of Golf episode. My next guest is Craig Cochran, a self-described boomerang superintendent currently at the Van Patten Golf Club in Mechanicville, New York, a 27-hole public golf course built in 1968 with one owner-operator. We began our conversation chatting about how the spring began in the Northeast for a public operator. We got started very quick at Van Patten. The weather was nice. The golf course came out of the weather as clean as it's been in a long time, relatively dry. Um, we have some wet holes out on the on the golf course, 27-hole facility. So there's some holes that we could get 10 inches of rain and be playing on the next day. And there's holes we could get a half inch of rain and couldn't be on in a week in the spring. We opened very early for us and got busy very quick. Without carts, we were we had a lot of golfers before we got shut down the first time. Before the pandemic really got as serious. We, we opened early to where 
we didn't have a procedure in place for how we were going to sanitize carts. We were on the edge of whether carts would be okay out there mm-hmm. on a lot of holes. Mm-hmm. So we opened for a week or two without carts, and then we opened nine holes with carts, and then quickly after got 18 holes with carts, and then immediately got shut down the first time. So we didn't really have a lot of cart traffic that first time. Okay. 27 holes, privately owned, the 52nd year of serving the community. How many employees and how many acres are you managing? In season, I have around 20 guys right off the rip this spring. It was me, my assistant, my mechanic, and like two or three young guys. Like I had college guys that were, you know, contacting me. Hey, I'm done with classes. I'm coming home. You know, I'm ready to get going. And I was excited. Oh, we're going to be able to start edging bunkers, you know, sooner than ever this year. You know, having help just for the amount of play that we were getting right off the rip it was having help changing cups. We had to change pins every day on every hole. It just takes a lot of time. That you wouldn't normally have to do? Not this time of year. Not our first thing in the spring. You'd be able to change them once or twice a week. And we were changing them every day. So when you were busy early on and having to change cups, were you keeping tea times tight or were you able, were you spreading them out? When we reopened after the first closure is when we got even busier. That was the strictly online, you know, had to uh, book your tea time online, pay online. No clubhouse, no pro shop. No, no accessories out there. No, no pro shop. And we were booking every day, almost completely full. We'd space tea times out to 10 minutes. I think we're normally every eight minutes. We went out to 10 minutes, putting cones up to keep the, the congregation area was at the first tee and the problem area was the parking lot golfers were like, we didn't have any beverages or food. Every morning, the parking lot looked like a Steelers tailgate. (laughs) And it was, I spent way more time trying to disperse golfers in the parking lot as opposed to being out trying to get the golf course ready. And so these are the beginnings and the early signs of the adaptations we're going to have to make. Let me start with the question about tee time. Is 10 minutes enough? We switched to have golfers tee off on 19 first because it's a par five. You know, people were hitting drivers off as opposed to our 10th hole, which is a short par four, and instead of bunching people up. So we, we tried to make some adjustments. It was a lot easier to keep people spread apart without carts because you didn't have the, the congestion. People kind of walked off their own way. We put foam insulation in the cups and did all the things that golfers were very good on the course, very mindful. The day that we had, the Saturday that we had 300 players, talking to our golf professional, he says, the only day I've ever had golfers on a golf course and had no complaints, no complaints about pace of play, no complaints about conditions, nothing. People were just happy to be out there. And I felt a responsibility to make sure people were following the rules. And I didn't see anybody not following the rule other than what like you'd see a husband and wife play together and be standing closer together. And they'd let you know, when you'd see them, they'd say, hey, this is my wife. Because you could see that, you know, everybody was so just like being in a grocery store right now, everybody's on edge and and that's right. Yeah. So it's so great to hear you say this, Craig, because what you're describing is a social responsibility, right? A social responsibility we have to each other. Golf affords by its nature, open space and a lot of room. So glad to hear you say, number one, are they a they're appreciative to be out, so they're not griping about green speed and bunkers, pays of play. And they understand that when they're out there, there's a certain amount of responsibility. If everybody behaved like the people at Van Patten, I think we'd still be open in a lot of places. But a lot of places were not 
policing and being as socially responsible. And the optics for golf were really bad. It's like they almost didn't care. Well, they were sort of snooting their nose at it. What do you think? I think it's hard to justify that golf is essential. It's safe. It's a safe activity. It's very safe. And it's it would help a lot of people to be able to get out. It's a way to social distance and still interact with people safely while you're playing a game that you know most golfers love. I, you know, I truly believe you can do it safely, but my fear is hoping that these people will follow more specific rules when they won't fix ball marks or rake out their footprints doesn't leave me a lot of <laughs> hope. You know, a few bad apples will spoil the bunch. Well, I really believe that this is where our colleagues in the CMAA and the PGA of America are going to be very important in helping devise workforce rules and the kinds of facility rules at the front of the house that are going to make it easier. Let's talk about the back of the house and the work you guys are doing as a crew. Do you feel you were at risk or are we putting more people at risk by staying open uh, and having to maintain the course? Um, at any time, I think somebody has to leave their house right now. There's a risk with that. Um, it, you know, I don't think, I mean, we um, right off the rip went into a, you know, the break room got closed. There was no punch in a time clock. You know, any touch points that we had, we were at a small enough crew that everybody had their own vehicle and that was their vehicle. All tools, everything became like a gym. You wipe stuff down before you used it and you wipe <laughs> stuff down after you used it. So it was, everybody got a spray bottle, gloves, and, you know, it was yeah. gym protocol. Everything wiped down. If I, you know, and I saw my guys do, because we had so few when we normally have 20 guys, when you got three or four, it's a lot easier to manage and make sure that everybody's following those rules. So so that you put systems in place, and this is where I think superintendents are going to be really good. It's not going to take guys. I mean, if you're good in this business, you make it to be a golf course superintendent. Most guys can figure out a procedure for how to keep everybody safe. But it is a big change and shift. And the bigger question is, when you start playing and you know we're back to somewhat normal and you're doing a hundred and let's say even just on a busy day with tight with the way it works out you're doing 200 rounds across 27 holes you're still setting the place up just like a normal day you're going to need 15 16 people i wonder when we swell or you go to larger operations that's going to entail uh quite a bit more are you first do you think you're going to be able to get back to full size or is the economic hit been so tough right now you're probably not going to get back to full staff most definitely won't get to full staff right away. Most of my staff's retired, uh, my operators, <laughs> and I don't know if I want them here unless they insist they want to be here. And then I can stagger starts and assign specific mowers so that they can come in. I do that kind of anyway. My greens mowers come in before the rest of the crew and go out and they each have their own mower and their own loop. Mm -hmm. Some of my rough mowers each have their own machine. And we've kind of got some of those procedures already in place. But do I want the 78-year-old guy with some health issues that sits on a mower for me here? No, not unless he insists. You know, So I, I think it'll be having some more younger college-age guys having to do operation or having one mower mow two or three different areas that it doesn't you know, the, the golf course isn't going to be the same as it would be. You know, some of the tee edges are going to be a little scalped, and there will have to be some adaptations because we just, I don't want to have that many people here. One of the guys, the reason they're here is not for the money. It's for the, to get outside, get away from their wife and for the camaraderie, the, the sitting in the break room and, and preaching to each other. And if they're here, they're going to naturally want to do that. And I, that's part of the problem. I don't want that.
it feels like safety for you. At this stage, you think golf is healthy enough where you are. You've got a healthy enough operation that you could be at full complement and afford it. Or has this been a big enough hit? No, we're, we're doing as little as possible just because it is. I mean, we're just coming out of winter. We're always kind of struggling just to, to get going. I mean, without having weddings, banquets, parties, um, you know, the, my owner said, just keep greens alive. That's just keep greens alive. Well, you know, that sounds great, but I, I have a golf course to keep, you know, I, I've never had to manage a golf course, not for play. So it went from, I, I got to fertilize. I'm getting so many rounds early in the year. I got to recover from this traffic to, well, I'm glad I didn't fertilize. I'm glad it's snowing because I don't, <laughs> I, I just want things to kind of hold steady so that I can get this facility back ready for play quickly. It can be done safely. The fact that it's outside, like I feel safe being on the golf course. It's eerie being out there with no one out there, being all alone. It's very quiet. You, you don't hear any mowers. You hear all the bird sounds. And usually I have headphones on listening to a podcast or an audio book, but it, it's eerily you know, empty on the golf course. That's Craig Cochran. And now a few final thoughts from Jim and Stuart. What's your advice to the courses that know they're going to be standing when this is over, you know, the way to approach the next couple of months? Yeah, I think the big advice for the courses will be left standing. Many of them are going to have best practices to start with. That's why they're going to be the survivors. And so my sense is, you know, that they don't overreact to this and try to attempt things that are impossible to do at a golf course. So my sense is they're already doing best practices. They've suffered in doing best practices by other people cutting corners and trying short-term things. So my advice to them would be stay the course. You know, what you're doing uh, is working. And I think it offers an opportunity for golf to be more relevant to the population for a short window of time. And they need to take advantage of that. As Stuart mentioned, you know, we've talked, people say that the calling card for golf is fun. And like anybody who's started the game of golf, fun is not golf's calling card. It is, no. it is not fun until you get to a certain level of proficiency. So our, our friend and colleague, Bill Golden said, you know, it's more about kind of the rewarding aspect of golf. The reason you come out here is for that, you know, two or three shots that Jim hits during the course of a round that actually turn out the way that he had planned them. So, you know, a five iron that makes it to the green and doesn't have a lot of bend on it. So my sense is, and Stuart's talked about this, you know, informal instruction that helps people, you know, get to those fun shots. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out here to a person that I rarely give a shout out to, Joe Bedditz down at NGF. He talks about shot euphoria, hole euphoria, and round euphoria. And the secret in my mind as to how we become more relevant to people and get more folks in the game is we focus on getting quickly to shot euphoria. What I would add to Jim's thing is golf is going to have an opportunity to attract some new people because they can't be playing softball, they can't be playing basketball, fitness centers are going to be affected by this. So we've got an opportunity out there. And if we welcome the people in, that's going to be great. And the people that survive, they have an opportunity to keep those people. Then the other thing too, is that the successful golf courses communicate and continue to communicate with their people and bring them back. The successful operators are communicating, interacting with their customers better than some other people. And that's why they're successful. Thank you for joining me for this special episode of Frankly Speaking. And thanks to my guests, Jim Copenhaver of Palooza Golf, Stuart Lindsay of Edge Hill Consulting, Jamie Robb of Marine Drive Club, and Craig Cochran from the Van Patten Golf Club. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. 
frankly speaking, is normally recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, currently produced in the basement of 331 Buck Hill Road North by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.